0: The 2021 update to the American College of Rheumatology guideline for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis demonstrates that the treatment of RA is rapidly evolving. Historically, patients with RA were treated with disease-modifying antirheumatic drugs, or DMARDs, but now there are five different classes of biologics in addition to the targeted synthetic Janus kinase, or JAK inhibitors, to consider. With so many treatment options, choosing appropriate therapy for RA patients becomes challenging. Today, we are joined by Dr. Chelsea Morkin, an ambulatory care pharmacist at Mayo Clinic Health System, Mankato, to review the 2021 RA guidelines and the new data regarding cardiovascular concerns with JAK inhibitors, as well as to discuss the selection of pharmacotherapy that is based on patient-specific factors.
1: The word rheumatoid stems from an ancient Greek word ruma, meaning to flow or a stream, this is because our ancient Greek counterparts believed that our rheumatoid conditions stemmed from an imbalance of fluids in the head. Since our ancient Greek times we have learned a lot more about our rheumatoid conditions and rheumatoid arthritis, but we still have quite a bit of room for improvement when it comes to managing this disease. So hopefully by the end of the presentation today, we'll understand more about rheumatoid arthritis than our ancient Greek uh, predecessors did. Um, Our learning objectives today include to explain the pathophysiology of rheumatoid arthritis, or as I will refer to it throughout the presentation as RA, to describe the literature regarding cardiovascular risks risks with our Janus kinase inhibitors, and to recognize appropriate initial therapy based on patient-specific factors. So rheumatoid arthritis is not a very common disease. It only affects about 0.5% to 1% of Americans annually, but it does have a higher prevalence in North American and Western European countries, so it is more common in the United States. This is a genetic condition, so there are some risk factors that certain patients have that put them at a higher risk of developing RA. Our females are at a three times higher risk of developing RA than our males. Patients that are middle-aged and have a family history are also at a higher risk We do have some modifiable risk factors as well, such as smoking and obesity that put patients at a much higher risk. RA is an immune-mediated inflammatory disease, so it is affected by our immune system. And there are four specific characteristics that are hallmark of rheumatoid arthritis. So we'll see in the image below each of these four steps. The first step in RA is synovial lining hypertrophy. This is the thickening of that synovial membrane in our joints, as we can see in that first image there. This hypertrophy then leads to a synovial effusion, and a synovial effusion is the leaking of that synovial fluid into that joint space, and this synovial fluid is full of inflammatory markers, such as macrophages and cytokines, leading to um, inflammation in the joint space. This inflammation then leads to our cartilage formation inhibition, which you can see in the third um, picture down below, so our cartilage does not regrow, and then finally, this lack of cartilage and inflammation leads to bone destruction, as we can see in our last image there. Zooming into a cellular level, this is an immune mediated condition. So we have formation of antibodies, which then triggers a response in our immune system. Ultimately, this leads to the activation of our T cells. Our T cells can be activated through two different pathways. We can be activated through a B cell by CD20, an antigen, or we can be um, activated through our antigen presenting cells or APCs through a pathway called co-stimulation, which can be stimulated through our CD80 and CD86 antigens. Our activated T cells then activate our macrophages. Um, We'll see here an enzyme on the macrophage called Janus kinase. This is an enzyme that helps to phosphorylate and activate our cytokines that are released from the macrophage. Three important classes of cytokines that we will further discuss include our tumor necrosis factor and our interleukin-1 and our interleukin-6. So these cytokines are released in that synovial fluid that is in the joint space, which then leads to damage of our cartilage and our bone. So this damage from that inflammation can happen both locally and systemically. Our local symptoms include joint stiffness, tenderness and pain, and warmth. Typically, our symptoms are bilateral, so evenly affecting both sides of the body, and our smaller joints are affected first. So usually patients will have their first joints be affected in their fingers and their toes. Since this is an inflammatory condition, we can also have systemic side effects as well, including fatigue, fever, and loss of appetite we leave RA untreated, we can get into some pretty serious complications, including Sjogren's syndrome, which is the drying of the mucous membranes, increased risk for cardiovascular disease, uveitis or eye inflammation, lung disease, osteoporosis, and vasculitis. An important distinction with our rheumatoid arthritis condition is that some people will mistake it for osteoarthritis, so I think it's important that we pull out the difference between the two diseases. So osteoarthritis is much more common in the general population, so it has a much higher incidence. This is the normal breakdown of our bones with normal wear and tear. So this is pretty common and normal with aging. This is uh, described with a cartilage and bone breakdown. So this again is just that uneven wear and tear of of our joints. This can be either unilateral or bilateral depending on the patient and how they're wearing out their joints. And it's most importantly, um, it does not involve any sort of systemic inflammation. So this is just local symptoms. So we can see an image here that depicts a difference. We have a healthy knee joint and there's a knee with osteoarthritis. You can see that joint is unevenly worn. And then we can see our rheumatoid arthritis knee where there's that inflammation of the synovial fluid. So it's important to note that our rheumatoid arthritis is not a straightforward diagnosis. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. So we need to rule out other conditions before we can say that it's definite RA. So in 2010, ACR, the American College of Rheumatology, and ULAR, the European Alliance of Associations for Rheumatology, came together to create classification criteria to make the diagnosis easier. Patients can be included to use this criteria if they have more than one joint with synovitis or that inflammation of the synovial fluid, and their symptoms cannot be explained by another condition. So a patient that has a score greater than or equal to six out of a score of 10 would be definite RA. Patients can be diagnosed with RA with a score less than six, but it would be based off of radiographic assessment of the joints. So you can see our different criteria here for our diagnostic criteria. The first one is joint involvement. So the more small joints that you have is um, worth more points. Then they look at lab values, such as our antibodies. So a positive RF or rheumatoid factor or ACPA would get you more points. We also look at our acute phase reactant or our nonspecific inflammatory markers, such as CRP or C-reactive protein or ESR, erythrocyte sedimentation rate. These are elevated. We get another point. And then if our duration of symptoms is more than or equal to six weeks, we also get another point. And again, we're looking for a score greater than or equal to six out of 10 for diagnosis. So this leads us into our first assessment question. Which of the following is not a factor in the pathophysiology of rheumatoid arthritis? Is it A, synovial lining hypertrophy, B, synovial effusion, C, normal with aging, or D, cartilage formation inhibition? All right, perfect, 100%, you guys have got it right. So it is C, normal with aging. This would be diagnostic of osteoarthritis, that normal wear and tear of the joints, um, and rheumatoid arthritis does have that synovial lining hypertrophy, so the thickening of the synovial lining does have that synovial effusion, and it does cause cartilage formation inhibition. So this leads us into our American College of Rheumatology treatment strategies, the treatment strategy that they promote is called treat to target or sometimes referred to as triple T therapy. This is defined as aggressive initial treatment so as soon as a patient is diagnosed with RA we want to treat them as aggressively as we can as early on to prevent complications. This is decided on through shared decision making through the patient and the provider, and it should be reevaluated for goals every three months. So our main goal for all of our patients is to achieve remission or low disease activity. Um, Achieving remission is the goal for all patients if possible. Some patients who are diagnosed at a later stage of their RA may not be likely to achieve full remission. So their goal would be low disease activity. Our definitions that will be important as we decide initial therapy for our patients. Um, Early RA is defined as symptoms lasting less than six months and then established RA is defined as symptoms lasting greater than or equal to six months. So this moves us into our pharmacologic therapy. Before we choose any medication for our patients, we need to do our pre-treatment screening. And with any patient, we need to look at their specific factors. So patients that have certain comorbidities, such as cardiovascular disease, lung disease, pregnancy, and breastfeeding need to be considered when choosing agents. There are some pharmacogenomic um, indicators for some of our medications. So if they're looking into using one of those medications, we would need to do a pharmacogenomic test prior, and we'll discuss those as we get to them. Route well, preference is very important to some of our medications are oral tablets versus a sub-Q or an IV infusion. Um, it's important also to look into our injectable agents. They are sub-Q and administered by the patient. So are they able with their disease activity to self-administer the injection or do they need help with that? Insurance coverage is also a huge thing that helps us to s- decide which medications we choose within a class of medications, as there may be step therapies or formularies that we have to follow. Immunization status is also important. These are immune suppressing medications. So if patients is indicated for a live vaccine, we need to give those prior to starting therapy. And level of disease activity is very important when we are choosing initial therapy for our patients. So to measure our different disease activities, there are four different categories that a patient can fall in, remission, low, moderate, or high. These are measured by patient questionnaires and different lab tests like our CRP and ESR lab measures. And now a patient would be uh, defined as having clinical improvement through a measure called ACR20. This is a greater than 20% reduction in the number of affected joints, and there has to be a greater than 20% improvement in three out of the five following criteria. So a patient has to have improvements in their global assessment. A physician has to have improvement in global assessment. Their functional ability has to be improved, pain scores, and those inflammatory markers, ESR and CRP. There also can be our ACR50 and our ACR70 scores, which is just a higher level of improvement by 50 or 70%. We also have to look at our lab measures when we are deciding our pretreatment screening. So we have to look at our CBC, our complete blood counts, serum creatinine for kidney function, ESR and CRP for inflammation levels, our fasting lipid panels, liver, liver function tests. We also need to be screening for latent hepatitis and tuberculosis as some of our medications may reactivate latent disease. And if a patient is considered to be on hydroxychloroquine, we would need a baseline eye exam. So moving into the new 2021 ACR treatment guidelines, they break down therapy based off of first-line, second-line, and flare treatment. Our first-line agents are our conventional synthetic DMARDs. Our second-line agents are biologics and our targeted synthetics. And then our flare treatment includes NSAIDs and corticosteroids. So first, we'll focus on flare treatment. FLIR treatment is only for acute symptom relief, so there is no cure for rheumatoid arthritis, and our disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, or our DMARDs, only help to slow disease progression. So for those patients that are having acute symptoms, we could consider starting on an NSAID or a corticosteroid until their disease is under control. These medications are not recommended chronically and usually are only used for about 10 to 14 days. For our NSAIDs, we can use either our topical or oral agents. We'd want to start with a topical agent locally at the site of the joint irritation, and if this is no longer working, we could switch to an oral agent. Similarly, with our corticosteroids, we would start with a topical, move into an oral if disease is still active, and there are injectable agents as well, intramuscularly or intraarticularly available for our steroids. This moves us into our main class of medications that are used for RA, our disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, or DMARDs, and again, we have three different subclasses, our conventional synthetics, our biologics, and our targeted synthetics. So just overall, our DMARDs are really our mainstay of treatment. They're the only class of medications that helps to slow disease progression. These medications do take a long time for patients to see symptom relief, can take up to three months, sometimes up to six months. So it's important counseling point for our patients to make sure that they are staying on therapy and not getting up too soon prior to seeing that efficacy. And if a patient is on a medication and it's not working, we have two different types of therapy failure based off of their response. We can have a primary failure, which is no initial clinical response. So they're on a DMARN for three to six months and have seen no benefit. This would be a primary failure. Patients can also have a secondary failure, which would be that they had an initial response or maybe even achieved remission on a medication, but after an extended period of time, it starts to lose its effectiveness, so this would be considered secondary failures. And then overall, all of our DMARDs are immune-suppressing medications since RA is an immune-mediated condition, so it's important to note that all of these medications have a risk of causing malignancies, infections, and hematologic toxicities, so these are important things to consider prior to starting a patient on a DMARD. This leads us into our first class of medications, our first-line treatment, which is our conventional synthetic DMARDs. We have five different agents in this class. We have methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, luflunamide, sulfasalazine, and azathioprine. Their three-letter abbreviations are listed there. Our first medication and our most commonly used is methotrexate. This is our gold standard treatment first-line medication for rheumatoid arthritis. It is a dihydrofolate reductase inhibitor. It's available in a variety of dosage forms, oral tablets, sub-Q injections, and intramuscular injections. And I'll draw your attention to our dosing here because this is very important for methotrexate. For rheumatoid arthritis, this can be dosed 7.5 to 25 milligrams once weekly. And if you remember anything from the discussion today, that we never use methotrexate once daily for our rheumatoid conditions. This can potentially be fatal for our patients. We only want to use methotrexate once daily if it's for an oncology indication. So we never use it once daily for RA. Some other things that are important to consider with our methotrexate is it does work on folic acid. So we do need to be supplementing our patients with a supplement of folic acid, one milligram daily or five milligrams given the day after that weekly methotrexate dose. We do happen to have an overdose of methotrexate. Leucovorin can be used for overdose treatment. Now, the reason that we never wanna give it daily is because methotrexate has a myriad of black box warnings, including severe adverse reactions, hypersensitivity, it's so we don't use it in pregnancy, can cause severe or maybe fatal bone marrow suppression, renal impairment and hepatotoxicity, pneumonitis, GI toxicity, secondary malignancies, dermatologic toxicities such as Stevens-Johnson syndrome or toxic epidermal necrolysis, and opportunistic infections because it has so many black box warnings and things we need to be monitoring for, does have a very strict monitoring plan. So we wanna be monitoring our CBCs, our LFTs and our serum creatinine earlier on as we're initiating therapy. So the first three months of therapy, we wanna be repeating these labs every two to four weeks. After they're on the medication for about three to six months, we can extend this interval to eight to 12 weeks. Then after six months, we can repeat labs every 12 weeks. Our next most common medication in our conventional synthetic DMARDS is hydroxychloroquine. This is an antimalarial drug, so the mechanism of action is unknown for RA. We don't know why it works. We just know that it does. This is an oral tablet that can be given daily or twice daily. This is the preferred medication in pregnancy and breastfeeding. So if you have a patient that is pregnant or wishes to become pregnant, this would be our preferred agent. Interestingly, it does have a pharmacogenomic indicator for a G6PD deficiency, although we don't test this in all of our patients prior to starting therapy. Patients with a G6PD deficiency are at a higher risk of having anemia with the medication, but we really only test for this if they happen to have anemia while on therapy, so we can rule out any other causes of the anemia. And then we do need to have follow-up yearly eye exams, and this is because hydroxychloroquine can cause retinal toxicity and vision loss, so we need to be monitoring our eye exams at least yearly. Other warnings and precautions include cardiomyopathies, arrhythmias such as QT prolongation or dermatologic toxicities like SJS or TEN, worsening psoriasis. So if a patient has concomitant psoriasis with their RA, we would avoid hydroxychloroquine. can cause myopathies and neuropathies, psychiatric reactions such as increased suicidal ideation, and has a risk for hypoglycemia, so we would use it in caution in our diabetic patients. Some of our other medications in our conventional synthetic DMARD class are less commonly used. So we'll talk about the last three here. Um, Loflunamide is a pyrimidine synthesis inhibitor. It isn't available as an oral tablet and requires a loading dose and a maintenance dose. Um, it has this loading dose because the medication has a very long half-life. It's anywhere from 18 to 19 days. However, it does undergo enterohepatic recycling. So it can stay in our body for up to one to two years. So it lasts a very long time. Because it stays in our body for so long, we can use what we call an accelerated elimination procedure. So we can use either cholestyramine or activated charcoal um, for 11 days to get the liflunamide out of our system quicker. Does have a couple of black box warnings for pregnancy and is also hepatotoxic. And it has warnings and precautions for dermatologic toxicities, peripheral neuropathies, interstitial lung disease, and hypertension. And our monitoring here is the same as methotrexate. So more often earlier on in our treatment. Our next agent is sulfasalazine. Um, The active form of this drug is 5-aminosalicylic acid. So it is a salicylate that works on inflammation. It is dosed um, oral delayed release tablets once daily. This is really reserved for those patients that don't respond to other salicylate or NSAID therapies. So it's not generally used um, as one of our first-line agents. It is safe in pregnancy. So if we can't use hydroxychloroquine for a patient that is pregnant or breastfeeding, we could consider sulfasalazine. And one important counseling point is that it stains everything orange, so the tablets themselves and um, any bodily fluids in a patient that is taking sulfasalazine. So, if a patient wears contacts or is sweating, um, it can stain contact lenses and clothes. There is no black box warning for sulfasalazine, but it is a sulfa medication. So, any patients that have a sulfa allergy, we would avoid the medication. It can cause intestinal and urinary obstructions neuromuscular toxicities and is recommended to avoid in patients that have hepatic and renal impairment. Our monitoring here is the same as methotrexate. Our last conventional synthetic DMARD is azathioprine. This is a purine synthesis inhibitor and is a oral tablet, but it is a weight-based dose. This is a medication that requires genetic testing prior to starting therapy. We would want to test for TPMT and NUDT-15 deficiency, Patients with these deficiencies may develop life-threatening myelosuppression, so we want to be testing for these deficiencies prior to therapy. There is a black box warning for malignancy. We would not want to use it in a patient that is pregnant, and our monitoring here is a little bit different. We would want to be monitoring those CBCs one to two weeks after initiation and any dose change, and then every one to three months thereafter, and monitor LFTs every six to eight weeks. So the ACR guidelines for our conventional synthetics for our DMARD-naive patients, so a patient who's not been on a DMARD, is broken down by disease activity. So if a patient has moderate or severe disease, we would always use methotrexate first. And if they have low disease activity, we would consider hydroxychloroquine first. And then we would, if the patient could not be on hydroxychloroquine, we could use sulfasalazine, methotrexate, or leflunomide. If a patient has a failure to one of their initial monotherapies of a conventional synthetic DMARD, the guidelines recommend dual or triple therapy, which would be a combination of any of our conventional agents. This is no longer recommended due to having newer and better agents, and the combination of these medications is usually poorly tolerated and has lots of side effects. So our first class of our newer agents includes our biologic DMARDs. There are five subclasses of our biologics, including tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors, interleukin inhibitors, including interleukin-1 and interleukin-6, our selective T-cell co-stimulation blocker, and our anti-CD20. So looking at a cellular level again, we can highlight our tumor necrosis factors. There are five agents in this family. Our first agent and our most common TNF inhibitor is adalimumab or humera This is a sub Q injection every two weeks that can be self-administered by the patient. Certolizumab or Simzia, also a sub Q injection, and this is our preferred biologic in pregnancy. Etanercept or Enbrel. This is a sub Q injection one or one to two times weekly. So this is a little bit more often than our first two agents. Interestingly, this you'll notice that a etanercept does not end in that monoclonal antibody MAB ending. This is because it is a monoclonal antibody fragment, so it's just a piece of the antibody. This was designed this way to potentially avoid increased risk for hypersensitivity reactions in patients. Our next agent is golimumab or sympony. This can be given as an IV infusion or a sub-Q injection once a month. And our last TNF is infliximab or Remicade. This is only given as an IV infusion. Um, It's important to point out that Sympony and Remicade are only indicated in patients that are using it in combination with methotrexate. Um, And if the patient has a failure to methotrexate or a contraindication, we would choose a different TNF-alpha inhibitor. Our black box warnings for our TNFs include malignancy and serious infections, also has warnings for injection site reactions, and is not recommended in our patients that have heart failure or demyelinating diseases such as MS. So in a 2009 meta-analysis that looked at six different Cochrane reviews, they compared the three available TNFs on the market for efficacy and safety. So they included Adalimumab or Humira, Enbril or Atanercept, and then Remicade or Infliximab. You notice they did not include Galimumab or certolizumab because these had not been FDA approved yet in our newer agents. So for efficacy, they found there was no statistical difference between the three agents and they measured this using that ACR50. And remember this is a 50% improvement rather than the standard 20% improvement. But for safety, they did find that a TANRCEP was statistically better. So they found there were less withdrawals from the trials due to adverse effects. And you can see the confidence intervals listed below. This was hypothesized to be because it is a monoclonal antibody fragment so or less risk of having those um, hypersensitivity reactions. So, if we break it down to a cellular level, again, for our next class of medications are interleukin inhibitors, including Anakinra, tocilizumab, and sarilizumab. So, our first class is the interleukin six, which includes tocilizumab or Actemra, and sarilumab or Kevzara can be given sub-Q, and extimer can be given as an IV infusion uh, that does have a black box warning for serious infections, as well as warnings for hepatotoxicity, GI perforation, and similar to our TNFs, it's also not recommended in our demyelinating diseases. Then we have our interleukin-1, which is anakinra or kineret. This is a sub-Q injection given once daily and it's recommended to be taken at the same time every day. So for patients that struggle with adherence or don't like to give injections, this medication is not preferred in those types of patients. It's also not recommended in patients that have asthma or impaired renal function. Our next class of medications is our co-stimulation blocker, Abatacept, and this uh, brand name is Arentia. This can be given as either an IV infusion or a sub-Q injection, and if a patient requires a quicker onset, we can also give an IV loading dose for a sub-Q injection. does have a warning for patients that have COPD and is not recommended in those patients. And then our last biologic agent is our anti-CD20, rituximab or rituxin. This is only given as an IV infusion, given every two weeks for the first two doses, and then can be spaced out to every 24 weeks. This agent is only considered for last line treatment because um, it does have a very long list of potential side effects, so we only want to use this after we have failed methotrexate and a TNF inhibitor. So we can see it does have a long list of black box warnings as well. Um, Infusion reactions that can potentially be fatal, mucocutaneous reactions, hepatitis B reactivation, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or PML, Also has warnings for GI perforation, bowel obstruction, nephrotoxicity, and is not recommended in our patients over 65 years old. It was found that these patients have a higher risk of pneumonia and arrhythmias, such as QT prolongation. So in a comparison between our different biologic classes, there was a 2011 systematic review that used the ACR20 measure um, to test for efficacy at six months. So they compared our TNFs grouped together and our non-TNFs or interleukins or anti-CD20 and our co-stimulation blocker all together um, after patients had failed monotherapy with methotrexate. So they assumed based on our previous 2009 review that all of our TNFs were similar um, for efficacy. So they were all grouped together. They found there was no statistical difference in efficacy with um, the TNFs and our non-TNFs. However, they did look at all of our TNFs grouped together versus specific agents in our other classes. It was found that our TNFs were statistically more effective than abatacept, which is our co-stimulation blocker, but with our interleukin and our anti-CD20 agents, there was no difference in efficacy. So choosing a medication class is largely based on insurance formulary and contraindications to certain medications. This leads us into our targeted synthetic DMARDs. There's only one class of medications in this family, which is our Janus kinase inhibitors, and there are three medications in that class. Our Janus kinase inhibitors, or our JAK inhibitors, include sitinib or Renvoke, tofacitinib or Zeljans, and baricitinib or Illumiant. These are all given as oral tablets and are all, all once daily except for our immediate release, Zeljans. So for a patient who is afraid of needles, these look like a good option. Something to consider for a patient looking for an oral option is we have to consider their black box warnings. So they do have black box warnings for serious infection. Malignancy, higher risk of thrombosis, and the most recent one that was just added here in 2022 is the major cardiovascular events. There's also warnings and precautions for GI perforation, elevated LFTs, and lipids. It's not recommended in patients with diabetes, hepatic and renal impairment, lung disease, or pregnancy. So to compare our JAK inhibitors against our kind of first-line biologic agent, or TNFs, there were two studies done for efficacy. So first was our oral standard trial, which compared our low-dose 5 milligrams twice a day of Jans or topocitinim versus a high-dose 10 milligrams twice a day compared to the standard dose of Humira or adalinumab versus placebo. They used the ACR20 at six months and they reported raw percentages rather than testing for statistical significance. So they found our low dose of topocitinib had a 51.5% achievement of ACR20. Our high, our high dose had a 52.6% and the Humera had a 47.2%. So again, this was not tested for superiority or non-inferiority, but they did report that they were numerically similar with our JAK inhibitor having a slightly higher rate of improvement. Our second study was the ra beam trial, which compared baricitinib or alumiant versus standard dose of humera versus placebo, and they checked the ACR20 at 12 weeks, so a little bit sooner of a follow-up. They found that in the baricitinib or our JAK inhibitor group had a 70% rate of achieving that ACR20 versus 61% with our TNF humera. This was statistically significant, and our JAK inhibitor was more efficacious than our TNF. So they're oral, they have higher efficacy, why wouldn't we use these in a lot of our patients? So in a 2022 study done by Itterberg and colleagues found or hypothesized that our JAK inhibitors had a higher risk of causing cardiovascular events. So this was a randomized controlled trial that was looking for non-inferiority between our JAK inhibitor ZELJANs at a low dose and high dose versus a TNF inhibitor, either Adalimumab or Humira or a Etanerceptor Enbrel. Um, The choice between Humira and Enbrel was decided based off of geography and what was available for the patient. So the primary endpoint looked at major adverse cardiac events, or what they called MACE. This was a composite endpoint of cardiovascular death, non-fatal myocardial infarction, and non-fatal stroke. And then they also included events of special interest, which are listed there, including unstable angina, new ischemic heart disease, any new TIAs or congestive heart failure, peripheral artery disease, or any thromboembolism. Patients were included in the study if they were over 50 years old and they had more than one cardiac risk factor, which included smokers, hypertension, low HDL, history of diabetes, family history of premature heart disease, any presence of extra articular disease, so any systemic symptoms of RA, and then any history of coronary artery disease. Patients were excluded if they had NYHA class 3 or 4 heart heart failure, or if they had an EKG abnormality that required urgent treatment or was indicative of a serious underlying heart disease. So for the primary endpoint, they found that it was not non-inferior. So what this means is that they found that there was a difference between our Jack inhibitor group in the combined doses and our TNF group. So for MACE events, they found for the low dose and the high dose combined, we had an incidence of 3.4% of MACE events versus our TNFs that only had a 2.5%. The interesting thing with this study is that they moved the upper boundary of their confidence interval to 1.8. So they allowed for a little wiggle room for the medications to be different from each other and still be statistically non-inferior. However, even with that moved confidence interval, they still found that there was significantly um, a difference between our JAK inhibitors and our TNF inhibitors for MACE events. And then an interesting secondary endpoint that they studied was found to be non-inferior was the difference between our high dose, 10 milligrams twice a day, and our low dose, 5 milligrams twice a day of our Zeljans. This was found to be non-inferior, so they were found to be similar in their uh, events of or cause of cardiovascular events. And again, interestingly, they had moved the confidence interval to 2.0 from the standard one. So that again, they're allowing for a little bit of wiggle room for them to be different. However, in this case, it was found to be non-inferior. So there was no difference between the two doses. They also pulled out the number needed to harm for our JAK inhibitor Zoljanz or tofacitinib. They looked at it in two different ways. So the patients needed to be treated for five years to have one additional MACE event. For our low dose was 113 patients and our high dose was 64 patients. So we can see even though they were not inferior, there was a little bit of a decrease in our number needed to harm for our higher dose group. And then for patient years of exposure to have one additional MACE event, they found in our low dose was 567 years. And then for our high dose was 319 years. So again, a little bit uh, lower number needed to harm for our higher dose group. So overall from the study, they concluded that our jack inhibitors do increase the risk of causing MACE events. However, the overall overall incidence was quite low, 3.4% versus 2.5%. The interesting thing about the study is that they chose to compare it against our TNF inhibitors. Well, there are other studies that show that our TNF inhibitors may actually decrease our risk for cardiovascular events. So in a 2010 systematic review, they studied um, all cardiovascular events, MI and stroke, which again, if you'll remember, was our composite endpoint for our JAK inhibitor study, and found that they statistically reduced the risk for all of these, so all cardiovascular events, MI and stroke. So the overall recommendation that came from this study was to use a biologic DMARD first after failure of a conventional synthetic. And we want to avoid our JAK inhibitors in patients that are over 50 years old and they have more than one cardiac risk factor. So this leads us into our second assessment question. Tofacitinib 10 milligrams twice daily had significantly more MACE events than tofacitinib five milligrams twice daily. So most of you are getting the right answer here. It is false. Um, so there was no statistical difference between the two dosing groups. It was found to be non-inferior. Um, however, they did kind of move that confidence interval, so we may not um, be getting the accurate picture with the difference between the two doses. All right, so here is just a summary table of all of the different medications that are available for the treatment of RA, so including our conventional synthetics at the top, our biologics that include our TNF-alpha antagonists, and then our non-TNFs, which are interleukin 1 and 6 inhibitors, our co-stimulation blocker, and our anti-CD20. And then our Janus kinases are the only class within our targeted synthetic DMARD family. So again, bringing it back to the cellular level, we'll see that we have classes of medications that kind of fit into every step along the pathway, anywhere from starting with our antibodies all the way down to the cytokine level. So this brings us into how do we choose treatment for our patients? Our initial treatment algorithm, again, is based off of that definition of early RA, so so, uh, symptoms lasting less than six months. So as we talked about when we talked about our conventional synthetics, it's based off of disease activity for those DMARD-naive patients. So if they have low disease activity, we prefer hydroxychloroquine, and if they have moderate or high disease activity, we would prefer methotrexate. If they fail that monotherapy of their conventional synthetic, they would be considered to have moderate or high disease activity. And you'll notice um, with this disease activity, we could consider a steroid or an NSAID burst for 10 to 14 days while we're waiting for their next DMARD to be effective. We remember it can take up to three months. Our first line for after we failed monotherapy with a conventional synthetic would be a TNF inhibitor. If they can't use a TNF inhibitor, we would use a non-TNF biologic, including our interleukins or anti-CD20 or our uh, co-stimulation blocker. And then if we can't use any of our either targeted or our biologic agents, we could consider a triple conventional synthetic DMARD therapy. Any of these um, biologics or targeted synthetics can be used alone or in combination with any of our conventional synthetic DMARDs, so they may be on methotrexate plus a TNF inhibitor. For a patient that has established RA treatment, so they've had symptoms greater than or equal to six months, this is based off of previous treatment failures or contraindications. So again, any of our medications can be used alone or in combination with a conventional synthetic. And the choice of our next medication class is largely based off of that definition of primary or secondary failure. So if there's primary failure, so again, the patient was on the medication for three months or so and has had no efficacy, we would select a medication in a different class. So if they were on a TNF like Humira, had no effect, we might wanna switch to like Actemra, one of our interleukin inhibitors. And then our JAK inhibitors are really reserved for those patients that have failed more than one biologic DMARD. So after they failed like an interleukin inhibitor, we could consider switching to a JAK, as long as they don't have any cardiac risk factors. For secondary failure for a patient who's been on a medication and has seen some efficacy or even a cheaper mission, but lost effectiveness after an extended period of time, we could consider selecting a medication within the same class. So they had a response to Enbrel, a TNF inhibitor and a year later they lost effectiveness, we could try Humera, another TNF, and hopefully they'll have response for another extended period of time. Then remember rituximab or anti-CD20 is only used last line as it is that IV infusion only. So here's a table full of contraindications. It's a nice summary of which medications we would avoid um, in certain patient populations. So for pregnancy where we would avoid methotrexate, leflunomide, azathioprine, and our JAK inhibitors, for renal impairment, we're avoiding methotrexate, sulfasalazine, our interleukin 1s, and our JAK inhibitors. Hepatic impairment, we're avoiding methotrexate, leflunamide, sulfasalazine, our interleukin 6 inhibitors, and our JAK inhibitors. For asthma, we want to avoid our interleukin 1s and our JAK inhibitors. And then for COPD, we're avoiding that co-stimulation blocker. For heart failure, we're avoiding our TNFs. And for cardiovascular disease, we're avoiding leflunamide and our JAK inhibitors. For demyelinating diseases, we would avoid our TNFs and our interleukin-6s. And then for diabetes, we would generally avoid hydroxychloroquine and our JAK inhibitors. So after our discussion today, if you're still unclear of, you know, what do I do or how do I diagnose rheumatoid arthritis, Ask Mayo Expert has great references that are available for those that are here at Mayo. Um, They have many different um, diagnostic pathways. They have um, ways that you can copy orders right into Epic or favorite content to come back to later. They also have access to a variety of different rheumatoid experts, as well as um, education in patient-friendly language and access to the most up-to-date clinical trials. This leads us into our last assessment question. MR is a 45-year-old female that was recently diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Her disease activity is classified as moderate. She has no significant comorbidities. What is the most appropriate initial treatment for MR? You guys are doing great with these assessment questions. (laughs) Everyone so far has gotten the right answer so methotrexate 15 milligrams once weekly would be most appropriate for MR. Hydroxychloroquine could be considered if she had low disease activity or if she was pregnant or breastfeeding. Adalimumab or Humira at a standard dose would be if she had failed initial conventional synthetic therapy Um, And our last answer, D, is always wrong. Methotrexate once daily is never the option for our rheumatoid conditions. Um, It's only ever given once weekly.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.